Gracious God, we pray that you would speak to us today, that you would encourage us, that you would challenge us, that you would be with us, that you would teach us more of who you are and more of who you've called us to be. We pray all these things in the strong name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. J.B. Phillips, in a book called When God Was Man, gives a version of the Beatitudes. He writes, happy are the pushers, for they get on in the world. Happy are the hard-boiled, for they never let life hurt them. Happy are those who complain, for they get their own way in the end. Happy are the blasé for they never worry about their sins. Happy are the slave drivers, for they get results. Happy are the knowledgeable, for they know their way around. Happy are the troublemakers, for they make people take notice of them. That's what the world teaches, right? Happy are the the rich and powerful, the famous and popular, the well-to-do and the well-off. Happy are are those who have whatever they want, do whatever they want, are whoever they want to be. And yet I, I wonder, is our world getting things upside down? And I ask that knowing that most of us pursue all these same things strive after all of these same things, orient our lives around all of these same things, wouldn't mind getting all of these same things. And yet, even in those odd moments when we do get what we want, we don't often end up living happily ever after after all. Now, you may be thinking, well, sure, sure, but, but those other people who have those things that I want, they sure seem happy. And yet, I wonder if that's just getting filtered through the lens of our desires, not to mention the lenses of social media. But of course, what if all that's not real? Maybe they're more unhappy than they seem. Maybe our world is more upside down than we think. This past weekend on our retreat, Pastor John Tony quoted Dallas Willard, who wrote, recently a pilot was practicing high-speed maneuvers in a jet fighter. She turned the controls for what she thought was a steep ascent and flew straight into the ground. She was unaware that she had been flying upside down. And Willard goes on, this is a parable of human existence in our times. Not exactly that everyone is crashing, though there's enough of that, but more of us as individuals and world society as a whole live at high speed and often with no clue to whether we are flying upside down or right side up. Indeed, we are haunted by a strong suspicion that there may be no difference, or at least that it is unknown or irrelevant. Pastor John then asked us, are we, are you flying upside down? Is our whole world a bit upside down? Or even are we flying and maybe even living so fast that we don't really care, let alone know? 
Of course, if we are trying to, to fly right in an upside-down world, this means that we will be living differently than the rest of the, the crowd and the rest of the culture and the rest of even our community. But this also means that our lives should be noticeably different from even our neighbors or our coworkers or, or our friends. Because if we are right side up and they are upside down, then shouldn't we have different priorities and different pursuits and different practices, let alone different purposes? Shouldn't it be noticeable that we are different? Which brings us to our new series. <clears throat> Because today we turn to Jesus' longest and most famous sermon known as the Sermon on the Mount. And as we'll see, Jesus is trying to teach us how to live this different kind of life, a right-side-up life in an upside-down world. And as such, He's going to use His sermon to try and reset some of our instrumentation, as it were, not to mention recalibrate maybe our horizon a little bit, not, not to mention re-aim our compass back toward Him. It's almost like part of what Jesus is trying to do here is, is, no, 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 no. This is up. This is right. This is how to live. This is where we're going. But of course, as we read, you, you'll think to yourself, that, that all sounds really good. That all sounds really right. But then there'll also be this feeling that it's a little bit downside up because of how long we've been living upside down, which means we're going to have to do some work on this one. We're going to have to let Jesus reorient our lives so that we can live better and really live more in the way that He's made us to live. And so with all of that as preamble, I would invite you and encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Uh, because I want to put this Sermon on the Mount in context. It's going to start in chapter 5, but I want us to get a running start to make sure we understand where we are and where we've been before we figure out where we're going. So we'll start reading in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, 
And we'll stop right there for a minute. Because it's worth pointing out and highlighting a few things before we get to the sermon proper. Because this one passage that we just read really ties up everything we've been working on this whole past year. I think we actually started this same passage in January when this year got started. But I want you to see a couple things. Notice first that Jesus' main message is centered around His kingdom come. Because, of course, Jesus' coming has ushered in a new way of life, a new way of being, a new kingdom. When Jesus came, something changed. Someone has now come near. There's a new reality in our midst. So that now you still can live the old way in the present kingdom, but you also can live in a different kingdom. Still right here, still coming still present. Next, Jesus calls disciples. Because as we've been talking about, discipleship is then how we learn to live in this new kingdom. It's how we learn to live in eternity. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. You may not be ready for heaven. Heaven may be very, very uncomfortable for you until we kind of work on some things, and therefore we should work on some things. Discipleship is also how we learn to live and become more like Jesus. And so he calls disciples, and they follow. And then finally, we find Jesus bringing good news. Again, about the kingdom, which as we learn by watching Jesus' next action, seems to be all about healing and helping and wholeness. His kingdom come discipleship, good news. And then after that, he heads up this mountain to teach. Unsurprisingly, his disciples follow him up the mountain to listen. That's what disciples do. If Jesus goes up a mountain, they go up a mountain. If he comes down a mountain, they go down the mountain. They follow. That's what a disciple is. The implication, therefore, is that some then in the crowd don't follow him up the mountain. Jesus goes up the mountain, and people watch him go and say, yeah, no, I'm good. That, that's, too, that's too hard, that's too far, I'm not that curious. So some people are not going to follow him. But then, as we're going to see in a couple weeks when we get to the end of this sermon, there have been others that were drawn up the mountain to learn from him too. The Sermon on the Mount's a funny one because it starts with the disciples coming and following him, and then at the end, he dismisses the crowd. So somewhere here, some said, you know what, I want to hear a little more. I want to get to know that guy a little bit better. I would like to follow at least a little bit more, and they work their way up the mountain as well. The hope is that we, too, can be drawn up that mountain as we learn from him and become more like him as well. So with that, we now can finally begin this sermon. Uh, so I would invite you then to turn to chapter 5, verse 3. These are the four Beatitudes. We're just starting, there's more than that. We're just starting with the first four. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Amen. <clears throat> 
Jesus begins this most famous of sermons with the Beatitudes, the blessed R's, the happy are the ones who, the, the blessings. Because according to Jesus, it's in living like this, in pursuing values like this, in becoming a people like this, that we get blessed. In other words, according to Jesus, happiness and contentment and joy are not found in being rich and powerful or famous and popular or beautiful and busy. Instead, Jesus seems to be saying that that's actually a little upside down. Because the secret to happiness of blessedness is found in these Beatitudes, even as most of us still pursue those former and ignore these latter. Even as most of us simply try and continue to angle our lives to be after the rich and powerful, famous and popular, beautiful and busy. Even as we strive to be just ahead of everyone else. But what if Jesus is right? What if truly blessed are the poor in spirit? Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So let's briefly go back through those four before we try and tie this whole thing up and kick this series off. Jesus begins with, blessed are the poor in spirit, which at first may seem a strange way to start a sermon. I'm pretty sure you're supposed to start a sermon with a story or something funny. I think that's what they teach you in preaching class, and Jesus is not doing well out of the gate. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's a bit counterintuitive, isn't it? That, that isn't our usual suspicion. Isn't our, our normal way of thinking that it's the rich in spirit who are blessed? I mean, that, that almost goes without saying. Uh, blessed are the spiritual heroes, not the spiritual zeros, as some author put it. Blessed are those who are uber-religious. Because they are blessed by God. That's, that's the point. That's why you be that religious. And then you have this Jesus guy, and he seems to be saying that we're getting it backwards. Which, while surprising, may also give most of the rest of us a little bit of hope. You see, according to Jesus, those who recognize their need for God, those who recognize their spiritual poverty, those who recognize that they aren't enough on their own, those... These are the ones who are blessed. And don't get this wrong. Jesus isn't advocating a laziness or a passivity or a submissiveness here. He's not telling everyone to stop trying and just everyone lay about. Blessed are those who are lazy. That's not what he's saying. But instead, he's hoping that we start to see our dependence on God, our, our poverty of spirit. You see, when people aren't very poor in spirit, they have a tendency to have trouble seeing that they have any needs at all, that they could require any help from anyone, that they can't just do it on their own anyway. But in all of that, they also cease recognizing their need for God. You see, if, if you don't have this first beatitude, it's almost like you don't need God. 
Because without this one, without our recognition of our need for God, then, then why would we ever learn anything from God? Why would we ever be willing to receive anything from God? Why would we ever follow God? At the end of the day, it strikes me that we can't be Jesus' disciples and we can't live in God's kingdom if we don't actually see any need for it, if we don't find any value in it, if we aren't poor in spirit. And Jesus seems to think that blessed are those poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Maybe part of what it means to live in the kingdom of heaven is recognizing the king, which reminds us that we are poor in spirit. Which brings us to the second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn. Jesus starts out the sermon not very well, and then he gets worse. Again, this sure seems upside down because clearly if you are mourning, think of a time in your life where you were mourning or someone else was mourning, most likely you did not call yourself blessed at that time. Because if you're mourning, something bad just happened. That's why you're mourning, and therefore, by definition, you're not blessed. That's just bad. I mean, when you think, uh, we mourn when someone dies. We mourn when things go wrong. We mourn when things have changed normally for the worst. We mourn when things won't ever go back to the way they were or the way we hoped they would become. And yet, in reflecting on this, it may be helpful to recognize that this isn't just talking about grief over the death of a loved one. Mourning is bigger than that. Maybe Jesus is making the larger point that we are to mourn when things are not the way they're supposed to be. This, this is not yet the kingdom where God's will is done. That out there, it, it turns out, is not how God wants it to be right now. There's a, there are stuff happening all over and even in our individual lives that are not God's will done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not as it is in heaven yet. More personally, we mourn over the ways that we aren't the way we're supposed to be. Alas, of course, we're not very good at this kind of mourning, are we? this kind of lament, this kind of grieving. There are very few, you know, self-help books about how to lament better. That, that's not something they teach you. That, that would be weird if you were reading a book on how to lament better, how to grieve better, how to mourn better. If you go to the, the, the store and, like, I need more sackcloth and ashes so I can sit in my mourning better, they will give you a funny look. I've not done that yet, but now I kind of want to. But what if we need to get better at this? I wonder if we might experience more freedom and comfort and life and healing if we had a better language, if we had more space for this kind of mourning. For, for, the, for the morning of simply, this is, this what I see, this who I am, this is not how God made us to be. And we grieve over that. 
What if we had a moment, a space, before we judge, before we pick a side, before we start trying to fix the situation? What if we first just saw it and sat with it and grieved over it, bringing it all before our God who mourns with us? And similar to that first beatitude, if I, if I can't mourn, at least the ways that I fall short and the ways that I'm not who I'm called to be, and the state of our lives and community and world, then maybe I'm missing out on being near the God who does mourn. And Jesus then says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. It's funny, if you try and reverse that, what if we can't be comforted until we mourn? What if that's the problem? I would like to be comforted, but I can't be until I actually spend some time in mourning. Which brings us to number three, blessed are the meek. Jesus just keeps going. This is, that, the first one was bad, the second one's worse, and now the meek, really? The mice, the mild, the mushy? Jesus seems like He's going a little bit far here, too, a little too far, because how can the meek be blessed? They are the sat upon, the stepped upon, the spat upon. How is that a blessing? Isn't this just inviting uh, victimization, not to mention bullying and abuse? Or again, is Jesus saying something different? Maybe it's less about how we're treated and even less about how we see ourselves and more that we aren't focusing as much on ourselves at all. Maybe Jesus is really talking about humility here, not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less, as C.S. Lewis once wrote. What if we didn't always need to be better than someone else? What if we didn't always need to be right? What if we didn't always need to be so focused on ourselves and our own image and our own worth and our own status and ourselves? More than that, what if we could use all that energy that we normally spend doing that to focus on God and others? I wonder if we might feel His pleasure and even blessings better. Interestingly, this blessed are the meek may also help us understand blessed are the poor in spirit a little bit better. Because humility is about looking to God and others more than we look at ourselves, not being quite so focused on me, 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 whereas poor in spirit is more about our ability to recognize our overwhelming and desperate need for God as we recognize our smallness before Him. Not just our smallness, but our smallness before Him. Really, poor in spirit is recognizing His bigness. Humility is focusing on that and not on myself. Apparently, both of these are important for this kingdom culture that Jesus is calling us toward, even as they both seem a little bit upside down in this world. I mean, this world gives a little lip service to humility every once in a while, but it's not a practice. It's not actually a virtue. But maybe that's upside down. 
in a world that always wants us to focus on ourselves because we are the most important thing out there, Jesus seems to be wanting to point us upward and outward. Because in, the, in His kingdom, that's where our focus belongs. Final beatitude for the day. Frustrated are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because our world too often is a mess. That's how I would have written it. Jesus went the other way. Uh, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. It's probably important to begin by just seeing how much and how strongly we are to long for righteousness. Jesus says that we are to hunger and thirst for it. My suspicion is that He's talking about more than the kind of hunger and thirst that we feel when we use those words. I didn't get my snack a little bit ago, so I am starving. I am hungry. My 64-ounce water bottle just ran out, so I thirst. Alas, this is about how much we long for righteousness on a good day, isn't it? I prefer righteousness. I wouldn't mind righteousness. But I don't know that I hunger for it. I don't know that I thirst for it. I don't know that I care enough to do something about it. I don't know that I care about righteousness more than just missing a meal. And yet Jesus seems to be saying that there should be an ache in us for righteousness, a longing for righteousness. Something should be upset in us when we see, see someone hurting, when we see something go not the way it's supposed to go, when we see people, people made in the image of God, hurting or hungry or in pain. And there should be something in us that needs to make that right again. Again, this is like those who mourn. But now we're not just sitting with it and lamenting over it. Instead, now we're longing for things to be made right again. For healing. For forgiveness. For peace. For wholeness. This is what we're supposed to long for. Because this is what the kingdom of God looks like. These are the first four Beatitudes. But what are we supposed to do with this? I mean, they sound, well, they sound upside down. They also sound a little bit awesome. Hopefully there was a moment there where you're like, okay, that's not all bad. I mean, it, it's great to be able to say, you know, blessed are the, the mourning and the meek or the hungering and thirsting or the poor in spirit. All those folks will be blessed. But what if that's not actually us? Or what if it is us, but we don't feel very blessed? What do we do then? Or, or maybe is Jesus trying to get at something more basic? Especially as He knows that too many of us are simply living upside down. Too many of us are going after the wrong things in the wrong ways for the wrong reasons. Too many of us don't really live any of these out either. 
which is why we end up being not all that happy, why we often feel ill at ease, why we have a sneaking suspicion that maybe we also are flying a little bit too fast upside down. Maybe Jesus is simply trying to point us toward the right-side-up blessings of His kingdom, even as we still have this innate desire for our upside-down world. Because sadly, too many of us still, if we were given the choice between poor in spirit or strong and wealthy, the reality is we'd choose the strong and wealthy. Given the choice between mourning and bliss, we will choose bliss every time. Given the choice between meek and powerful, let's face it, we're not seeking to be more meek. Given the choice between seeking righteousness and being free to do whatever we want, we'll choose not righteousness. Because, of course, we still value the powerful and the popular and the, and the prosperous. We still value this upside-down world. And yet, what if Jesus is trying to show us a different way? Where we can recognize and even remember our dependence upon God. Because in some ways, it's only as we remember that God is God that we can be in a place where we then can be blessed. It's only here that we end up living in His kingdom. In fact, when you think about it, that's really the lesson of being blessed in the first place. Because in order to be blessed, you need to recognize that there is a blesser. Otherwise, you'll think that any good that happens in your life is simply you or luck or fate. Which means nothing but striving and fighting for everything you can get. Whereas being blessed requires our need for a blesser, our recognition that there is a blesser and our understanding that our blesser has come to us, which then makes us poor in spirit, makes us mourn, makes us meek, and makes us hunger and thirst after righteousness. And in that we find blessing. That's technically the end of the sermon, <clears throat> but we're kicking off a new series on the Sermon on the Mount. So I want to extend to you two challenges. There's the easy version and there's the awesome version. Those are your choices. You have to choose one. Uh, the challenge is simply this. The easy one goes like this. I want you to read the Beatitudes once a day, at least Monday through Friday, once a day for the rest of this series. It's an eight-week series, two months-ish, just the Beatitudes. Last time we preached this series, I made you memorize them. So this is the easy version. I want you to read the Beatitudes once a day. For the advanced folks, for those who aren't the beginners in the room, for those who need a little bit of a an extra notch up, my challenge to you is to read the whole Sermon on the Mount once a day. It should, it feels long, it's like 10 minutes, that's, that's, that's the ask here. If you're doing your own Bible study, if you're reading through the Bible in a year, if you're doing one of those, 
pick option A, that's totally cool. If you spend like many, many hours in prayer and this is going to mess you up, stay doing what you're doing. But for those who aren't doing anything and yet still want to be advanced, read the whole Sermon on the Mount once a day. It takes 10 minutes, maybe 15, maybe less than that if you read faster than I do. Um, I timed it. So, that's, that's about where it is. You may need to slow down because Jesus has some things to say here that are kind of awesome. You may also want to start in different… Sometimes when I read, I kind of… Uh, it takes a while to get in it, which means I'm going to miss the Beatitudes every time. So, some days you may want to start with like chapter 6 or chapter 7 and then go back and catch up to where you were just to mix things up a little bit. That's allowed in this challenge. But those are your challenges. Uh, if you don't know, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. That's where you're going to find it. It'll be clear when he ends because there'll be a crowd and they'll go away. Um, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Read the Beatitudes every day or read the whole thing every day. That is your challenge. And let's see what Jesus does with that. Because the reality is we live in an upside-down world. And the only way we're going to be able to recognize that the world is upside-down is if we anchor ourselves somehow right side up. And so, it may take some sitting with this to recognize how we need to be changed. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You. We thank You for Jesus. We thank You that He called disciples, that He preached a kingdom, that He brought good news, and then He went up a mountainside to teach us. We thank You that Matthew wrote it down. And we thank You that we can live this out. Lord, this teaching feels upside down in our world, and yet it's our world that's upside down. And so we pray that You would help us learn from Jesus, that we would recognize that, that truly blessed are those who are poor in spirit, that truly blessed are those who mourn, those who are meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Lord, help us be that kind of people. Call us to be that kind of people. Help us to follow you as we become more like Jesus, who lived this out. It's in his name we pray all these things. Amen.